There's no simple or single explanation for the extent and kind of violence that patients are directing at staff in hospitals and clinics these days. But one thing everyone concerned has coalesced around is the importance of sending a very clear message that violence, including verbal threats and aggression, cannot and will not be tolerated. Now, that may seem obvious, but it probably cannot be said enough because it turns out that a lot of nurses and others assisting them have grown way too used to kicks and scratches and threatening words. And because there's also a lot of empathy for patients' predicaments, incidents tend to go unreported. So that's just one of the workplace violence dynamics we're going to talk about on this edition of WYHI. And I want to welcome you to WYHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and we come to you live bi-weekly. And after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, the idea is not to become less empathetic towards volatile patients, not in the least. But as you'll hear from our guests today from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, the idea is to become a lot more aware of risks and to be more prepared and more effective in mitigating and de-escalating situations that could turn violent. There are now a lot more people and resources to turn to, a lot more minds on this problem than ever before. So we're going to dig into at least a little bit of what this means concretely at one system. So to introductions in just a moment, but first here's IHI's John Gothier, and he's going to remind you how to take part in today's program. John. Yeah, all right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. So if you tuned into WIHI before, you know about the chat, and the uh, chat's where the great conversation takes place. It's also where you can ask our panelists panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants. When Madge opens up the floor to the questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged on to the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner that says audio broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone and the number is on all of the slides being presented. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I just put a direct download link into the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org WIHI, along with the chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. Finally, we're looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI. Please take the time after the program to fill out a very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. Thanks, John. We'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. Please feel free to tweet during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can connect with others in this conversation. All right, I want to introduce our panel. They're all together by phone, not too far from uh, here at IHI. They're over in Boston. Marsha Maurer is the Senior Vice President for Patient Care Services and Chief Nursing Officer at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. She leads a team of highly committed professionals who play a critical role in the hospital's work to ensure the highest quality and safest care for patients. Welcome, Marsha. 
Hello, thank you for having me. Terrific. Christopher Casey is the Public Safety Director and Police Chief for BIDMC. He previously served 16 years as Chief of Police for the town of Lexington, Massachusetts, and was Second Vice President of the Northeastern Municipal Law Enforcement Council. Welcome, Chris. Good to be here, Madge. Thank you. And Patricia Focarelli is currently the Interim Vice President for Healthcare Quality at BIDMC. She served in a variety of roles at the organization for 28 years. For the past 10, she has been responsible for the oversight of patient safety, risk management, and patient relations. And welcome, Pat. Thank you, Madge. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. All right. Well, we're going to start right off with Pat, and she's going to kind of set the scene for us. Pat, let's start with the national picture. Is violent behavior by patients towards medical staff on the rise in the U.S., and how would we know one way or the other? Thanks. Thank you, Madge. So unfortunately, it would not be uncommon for us to hear about episodes of violence by reading about them in the newspaper. Um, Just this week, there was a physician in Indiana that was shot in his office, and right here in Boston in 2015, across the street from our medical center at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, a physician was shot by a family member. Um, We know from the statistics that... Uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in particular, that healthcare workers, while they account for 11% of the workforce, they experience about 57% of the non-fatal work-related injuries. And you can see that um, in 27 out of 100 fatalities in healthcare and social service settings occurred in 2013 were due to assaults and violent acts. So, um, and continuing uh, from the from OSHA, the statistics would support the fact that while there are not a lot of episodes that we saw on the first slide there of uh, fatal injuries, that there are a lot of injuries for healthcare workers. Um, so we have been on a bit of a journey at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center um, to try to think about how uh, prevalent this was for us. We um, have been having groups working, I would say, through the 2000s, more uh, related to behavioral emergencies in our environment and then related to any use of force. We were joined by Chris Casey as our Director of Public Safety in 2009 and formed a strong partnership between uh, public safety and our staff. And if you could just go back to that uh, 2010 Sentinel Events Alert from the Joint Commission, this was an opportunity for us internally to say, based on the recommendations from the Joint Commission, were there things that we should be doing? We really got at this in earnest, I would say, in about 2013, 2014, with the committee that was formed that's a multidisciplinary committee focused on workplace violence, where we kind of folded in, looking at behavioral emergencies, looking at some use of force events, and then looking at employee safety through this multidisciplinary committee that involves healthcare quality, patient care services and nursing, representatives from our physician group, social work, public safety, occupational health, interpreter services, compliance, and emergency management. Emergency management is our, uh, does our training around active shooter, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but one of the things that we, we set as an organizational goal for 2015 
uh, was to think about how prevalent was were episodes of violence in our community and what did we know. And so uh, we began to collect events through our reporting system and other systems to try to quantify the number of events that were happening. And if you go to the next slide, you'll see a little bit of what we were beginning to capture over the first year that we were doing this and then also categorizing them in terms of what you see here. Um, but you, you're noticing something, I'm sure, when you look at this slide, which is that between the first quarter of fiscal year 16, so that's the fall of 2015 for us, and the next quarter you see a jump. And so um, Marsha Maurer is going to talk a little bit about uh, that jump and what we're doing to capture these events. Okay. Right. Thank you, Pat. Marsha, good. Ready, ready for me? There yep. we go. Yep. Um, so, you know, as Pat's been describing over the course of these slides, as, a, as an organization, we've been aware of the issue of workplace violence for some time, and that's why we have an active workplace violence committee. However, as Pat pointed out, beginning in February of 2016, in this organization, not specifically related to violence prevention, we began a process called uh, tiered communication calls. And what these tiered communication calls are, it's a management tool, and at the beginning of the day, local managers talk with their staff about what, the, what has occurred over the last 24 to 48 hours. They ask their staff, have there been any, has there been any harm to patient or any unusual patient care events? Have there been any barriers to providing care today? And relevant to this conversation, they ask, has there been any risk or harm to employees? Because we feel like risk or harm to employees is also an important value. So those um, staff would begin to call out all of these things um, and one of the things that caught us by surprise was the frequency with which staff reported situations of threat or actual assault. Um, it was rare for um, a week to go by without several call-outs of this nature. So this information was escalated by the local manager to the next level of management and then to me, and I in turn would share that information with the entire senior management team. And overall, that had the effect of creating a high level of situational awareness among the entire management team with respect to workplace violence. Pat's team started using these tiered communication calls, these uh, record, you know, our documentation of these call-outs, as a way to count the events. And so, as you can see, as we began to do these tiered communi communication calls, literally the number of reported threatening or actual assault events nearly tripled. So it also brought of where assaults were happening. So you can see on this slide, you know, we had, uh, we all understood that places like the emergency department or the inpatient psychiatric unit were places that probably had a fair amount of assault. But as you can see, it turned out that the majority of assaults were occurring on the inpatient units. Uh, and it's also the case, as you can see, that there were assaults that occurred in outpatient clinics as well. So that was a bit of a surprise to us. But again, even with respect to the emergency department, um, there is some nuance in that data because um, around the same time we conducted a specific survey within, with the staff in the emergency department to understand their experience of and their attitudes towards assaultive behavior. And I think we have another slide on that. Um, that. Excellent. Thank you. So as you can see on the survey, staff in the ED described really what I describe as nearly continuous contact with assaultive and threatening patients. But um, in contrast to this, they were only calling out these events um, about 17% of the time. They were, only, they were calling out the events that they witnessed or experienced. Um, now, this isn't really that surprising. Madge has already referred to the issue of some of the peculiarities of healthcare. 
Um, all of us are healthcare providers. We're nurses. We're doctors. We're people who work in this environment where we understand that our patients are going to be arriving to us um, under stress, not well, sometimes having mental health problems, sometimes having organic uh, brain conditions that might lead them to not behave as they'd like. And we sort of always lead with our duty to care. But what we really came to understand by this underreporting in particular in the ED, but underreporting all over, is that we had really kind of prioritized our duty to care over our own uh, wellness and our own safety. So as caregivers, as you've referred to, Madge, we really became to accept really what we are trying to elevate now as an unacceptable level of risk. So there's three findings there. You know, one is that assaultive behavior is far more common than we realized. Second, that it happens in really all care areas. And then third, that we really, as caregivers, tend to under-report and have been too accepting of that kind of behavior. So all those things were eye-opening for us. Marcia, can I ask you, uh, if, if uh, you don't mind, thank you for that information, and I don't know if uh, uh, you or, or Pat, before we turn to Chris. So we went through three slides pretty quickly, and I'm going to ask John to go back two to the first one. I just want to make sure everybody, so uh, did we have a problem? So in that first quarter, uh, FY16 to the next one, you were talking really about a jump that had a lot to do with reporting. Am I Correct there, um, correct. And, yeah, and okay. And in terms of the breakdown there, um, does the distribution there did that surprise you at all, or does that sort of was that more or less what you hypothesized, or was that surprising in any way? Uh, no, I don't think that this was surprising. Um, the, the, I guess the one thing is the actual number of physical assaults is just. Um, but the threats and the verbal disrespect were about what I had expected, I think. But when you, I, I mean, I, I would say that putting this all together in a graphic and then um, displaying it at different leadership meetings had a lot of power in terms of uh, recognizing that this was an issue. Right, and we also began to elevate this uh, don't worry alone right. kind of concept. So, you know, we're going to get into a lot of this, but certainly after... Um, the cardiac surgeon was um, murdered at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, we really wanted to elevate someone calling out even something that might seem not like that big a deal. So you can see one of the big jumps here is in both verbal disrespect and threats. So we really we wanted people not to ignore things, even if they hadn't come to the point of actual virus violence. We wanted to be able to get in and intervene early. So I think some of that. It's the general situational awareness, but we specifically, I know we did a major um, grand rounds with our entire perioperative service department, and I think the title of it was Don't Worry Alone, and we have begun to respond very aggressively and very quickly. If anybody calls out that someone behaved in a threatening way, we convene a group of people. We work with public safety. We try to assess whether we think that person really has the capacity for violence, and people witness this. People witness us having this level of taking seriously things. And so it's kind of an iterative process. When, when they do that call out that we've asked them to do, we jump on it and we, we, we take it very seriously. And that sends a message to people in the organization that we, we intend to, we intend to follow up on these things. And then that has a accelerating effect on people calling them out. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask just two other quick questions before we get to Chris. Can you give us a sense of what the range of things you're talking about when we talk about physical assault? And is there a, a more typical 
kind of physical assault that comprises uh, this number here? I think that the more typical would be a slap, a scratch, um, a bite. I think the throwing throwing things. Throwing in the last uh, week, we've had a throwing of a trash can at staff. Um, We've had a swinging of a call light that hit someone in the face. Uh, So there are throwing of items and, Mm -hmm. uh, yes, and and the scratching and kicking is sort of sometimes in the course of trying to provide care. Mm -hmm. Patients who are very agitated, that can be, you know, a very direct sort of... uh, Yeah. Okay. And then the next uh, slide, John, just uh, advance now to back to what what period of time when you said where does violence occur? What what uh, is this a snapshot of 515? Excuse me, 17 incidents uh, over one year, one year. Okay. Okay. Yes. All right. Very good. Sorry, Matt. No, that's okay. And is that a recent year? I mean, is that uh, do you remember which? Yes, it was. So this is 2015. It's a fiscal year. So it's a fiscal year. Okay. 2016. Okay. All right. Well, certainly, uh, listeners, uh, any more digging that you want to do into this? I just had a few, uh, perhaps obvious questions. And thank you, uh, Pat and Marsha. And now let's turn to Chris and we'll move on to the uh, kind of a role that you played. Uh, in, and we'll move on to the next slide, John. And Chris, uh, tell us a little bit about kind of... <laughs> What your normal duties are at the uh, hospital and then how uh, you uh, have been getting involved in in this uh, whole issue of protecting staff. Sure. So um, joined in 2009 and became, as Pat said, uh, a member of the Prevention of Violence Committee to start to look at strategies, techniques, and uh, to try to mitigate or prevent workplace violence. I think my role was one to, not think, my role is, and our role in security is safety and service, and to help uh, promote and support the clinical care of patients, many of whom have stresses and behavioral issues. Uh, We don't look at it from a law enforcement perspective. We look at it from a care plan perspective in developing a safety plan that will keep the patient safe and and manageable. but more importantly, our, our staff safe in, in, in the critical care they, they do to uh, treat patients. We did a survey back, uh, when I say we, the Medical Center did a employee workplace survey back in 2010. The results were that the employees felt very safe in the workplace. I would tell you that if they were surveyed today, uh, the answer would be that they don't feel nearly as safe as in 2015 for a number of reasons that that Marsha and Pat articulated. Uh, there's certainly national events, local events, uh, the unfortunate uh, murder of a physician right next door uh, of a colleague uh, with uh, Brigham and Women sh- shook uh, our staff tremendously to the core, uh, making them feel vulnerable to the point where they wonder if somebody who may be just threatening will turn around and, and, be, and feel provoked into indiscriminate violence. So as a result of that, leadership uh, tasked a steering committee that had the highest level of participation from uh, general counsel to uh, senior vice presidents and a cross-section of, of, the, uh, of the medical center 
to bring a consultant with national experience in healthcare and security and safety to do a full assessment uh, of security practices at the medical center. And the review included plans, obviously, policies, practices, looking at the physical security of buildings and grounds, uh, looking at the organizational and operational role of public safety, looking at visitor management and electronic security. And it also, more importantly, included, uh, the steering committee wanted included was that the consultants walk around during every shift and talk with employees. Now, they were, there were scheduled interviews with over 100 individuals uh, of the medical center, but walking around impromptu, stopping in and talking to employees. And that really uh, generated a wealth of information and really a plan of action uh, that uh, provided us with a nice uh, plan moving forward. And, and I know uh, Pat's going to speak more to what the outcome of that sur sur uh, assessment was and some of the interventions uh, that are ongoing now. Okay, Chris, thank you very much. So glad you're part of the discussion. Uh, Pat? We'll move on to, I guess, interventions. Yeah, the next slide. Thanks. Sure. Thank you. So, um, as I said earlier, this is all orchestrated through a multidisciplinary group that's focused on uh, reducing workplace violence and understanding it. We've branded an institutional campaign that we're in the process of rolling out across the organization with tips for our staff about being smart around their own safety and we're building out programs related to that. Um, as Marsha alluded to, one of the things that was very important for our staff is that when there is a serious threat by a family member or by a patient, and these are, these are the kinds of threats that we probably experience only three or four times a year where there's a serious weapons threat, um, we gather a threat assessment response team, and so this team would involve public safety, so Chris, myself from Healthcare Quality, the clinicians who know the patient or family best, social work, uh, someone from our Center for Violence Prevention and Recovery, legal, um, to think through what are the reactions that we should be or the actions that we should be taking to mitigate the risk, but also to show to our, demonstrate to our staff that we're taking these threats seriously. So, for example, if there's a family member who threatens that they're going to come in and injure us with a weapon, we have the ability to think through what supports we need to give to our staff, um, up to and including calling the local police jurisdiction, having them visit the house, um, putting armed officers in the unit if we need to. But in some cases, this is a place where we can sort out whether there's an organic issue that is where and that Chris describes this as somebody who is more bark than bite where we can talk to clinicians who know the patient and the family best so that we're making fair and just assessments about whether or not a patient can continue to get care here because some of the patients are frail and may be making idle threats. So it's this, it gives the opportunity to sort this out and to approach it consistently. We've also enabled have an online medical record where we've enabled the ability to put a safety alert related to a patient on the patient's profile that links to a behavioral note. So, in, so if a patient comes that has a past history of being abusive to our staff or injuring our staff or has eloped, we 
in the patient's profile, there's a special icon that indicates to the staff that there's something you should know about this patient or family, and it links to a note that describes the risk for you. We've also recognized that when we have patients who are eloping, this presents certain challenges for our staff in terms of um, potential for injury from a combative patient, let's say. Um, so we, we've tried to standardize our response at least to that process to help educate our staff about when it's safe to chase and when it's not. Um, and there's a lot involved in that. And then finally, Code Silver, which is our training around active shooters, there's a um, video that all of our employees watch on hire. But more importantly, I think the way that this is used is that the Chief, Chief Casey, as well as our Director of Emergency Management and some other support can go into this clinical unit after they've watched this video so that they can work with the team in the work area about their evacuation route about the place where they would gather, about where they would lock down the unit, so that we're reinforcing behaviors that are uh, focused on keeping us safe. Um, the, and then I think the thing, those are the interventions, um, but we also have created a dashboard that's a little more, um, has a little more detail than we've talked about before. And this is a dashboard that captures the activity in a single snapshot for the rest of the organization. So you can see what we showed you earlier, which was the graphic that has the number of events by quarter broken down in categories um, that you can read there. Also, the location where these events are happening so that there's a, a sense in a single snapshot to the leadership of the organization, where are these events occurring? The list of the data sources. So here's where you see that Mar the nursing supervisor reports are a rich source of data. And it's like our other patient safety uh, initiatives. We're always trying to encourage people to use our tools. But for this particular topic, it's online reporting is still a quarter of our reports. There are calls directly to public safety. There are calls directly to workers' comp and to environmental health and services. So we, we call all of those into this capture a kind of a 360 picture. And then we also track days lost from work on units and then the numbers of the, the, an estimated cost for those who are interested in the uh, cost related to all of this. And then you can see the pie chart is just what are the, who, who's at risk. So the majority of this is still patients towards staff. Um, this, looking at this every quarter in a consistent way has helped us to make sure that we are still working on in, in, increasing reporting, that when there's a case that results in serious injury that's going to lead to days away from work, that we really uh, evaluate what happened and how it happened. Um, and so this is, our, this is a dashboard of our activity for uh, five quarters. A quick question. Thank you so much. Uh, you're all sharing so much valuable information. The uh, quarter four sixteen to quarter one seventeen, we go from 153 known incidents yeah. down to 83. Is that significant? Yeah. It's significant in that we, we there was a change in the person who was capturing the information, and so we think that they missed some of the. Um, nursing supervisor report. So we're going back, actually, to look at those to see if we can increase that number. It's not, so I would say it's a, 
it's a decrease that's not related to anything that we did, that the volume is fairly steady. Okay. So right now, there it's not possible to really say that the interventions uh, are leading to any d- decrease just yet of incidents. Not, well, not, not in terms of this, because I still think, I mean, even after a year with these interventions or a year and a half, the um, I think we're still in that period where we could continue to see either leveling or increased reporting because, as Marsha alluded to earlier, we have really enabled the environment as much as possible to call these things out in a, in a way that um, is helping us to shape the interventions, but too early still to see a big decrease, I would say. Yeah, and I would say that, this is Marsha, I would say that the place I'd be really looking to see our interventions having an impact is on the, the green bar, the actual physical assault. I don't have really, the, the state of the state is that we're getting busier and busier. The opioid crisis is getting worse and worse. And so, frankly, I think potentially the volume of people who behave in threatening ways is only going to go up. We want to do a better job of responding to those um, so that they never, they don't escalate to actual assault. But I think, you know, we're capturing in this, in this information here a combination of threats and assaults. So, um, the totality of that bar is probably going to keep going up, but what we're, our goal is to have actual assaults go down so that, because we respond to them better. Okay. And, Marsha, while I have you, do you, what's the feeling amongst leadership in this whole environment? Uh, everyone is now, in addition to everything else, uh, really has to integrate uh, this, all this information, and I'm just wondering... Uh, kind of what impact it's it's having uh, in terms and what leaders can signal to staff uh, that might even help uh, what Chris was referring to uh, as perhaps survey results where people might say they did not feel safe. Right. Well, I think on a leadership level, you know, from my my role as a senior leader with a lot of staff underneath me, I mean, I spend a lot of my time thinking about the messaging that we're paying attention to this and the continuous messaging that it's important to be aware of it and important to call it out. So I just went, uh, um, I do a quarterly newsletter to, that gets mailed to the home of every nurse in the organization and spread around, and I editorialized about um, this whole issue. The title of it is safe, Self-Care and Safe Spaces that really um, calls out all the things we're talking about now. We've been holding nursing grand rounds and ethics rounds and other kinds of forums. And, and like anything that you want to get out, you can, you can, if you care about it and you want to make a difference, you can't just get it out once. You have to get it out continuously over and over again. And people need to see that you, that you mean what you say. So, you know, a single thing uh, doesn't, can, doesn't demonstrate that you're intending to actually address it. So I think for, for me the biggest thing is as leaders to continuously um, – pay attention to it, talk about it, do interventions, and just sort of the whole range of things be continually at it. And I think as an organization, you know, we elevate it to a front and center on our annual operating plan. We elevate it to our board of directors when we report to them from the safety committee. So we hold our own feet to the fire when we just keep talking about it. I think the thing I'll add to what Marcia said is that um, Chris talked a little bit about the uh, assessment that we've done about Security and our public, uh, it's our physical plant. Um, and as a result of that, there's some things that we've done, like put a fixed police officer in our emergency unit. And the elevation of this as an issue to leadership result, will result results in 
the understanding that the requests for money, for capital, to improve uh, lighting, locks, visitor management systems, um, it's a la- this level of visibility to leadership, I think, helps to align the resources in the organization to do changes to right. make it better. And I'll give an example of just so this, uh, our president, Pete Healy, at our leadership meeting last week, uh, kind of calls out something important at the end of each meeting. He reads a letter that's somehow uh, acknowledging or supportive of staff in the institution. And the letter he chose last week was a letter from a nursing director who had had about a, oh, geez, I think a three-month stay of a very, very challenging patient who was um, inappropriate and threatening to the staff, but yet we had to care for, and it required exquisite coordination between public safety and the nursing staff on the unit to protect everyone on a continual basis, and ultimately the patient was discharged, but the nursing director wrote basically a letter of thanks and appreciation to the public safety staff, which was read at this 250-person leadership meeting and then became a portal story. And interestingly, I, I commented that our portal stories often don't get a lot of comments, but instantaneously this portal story about the thanks to public safety generated probably more comments than I have seen for a portal story in a long time. So it really resonated with the staff that this is an issue. So every signal is this is a big deal. Yeah. Great. Um, I want to just ask one more quick question. Don't wring my neck, everyone. We're going to get to all your questions and comments, some of which are already in there. And please feel free now to, uh, you know, uh, share more of your thoughts and ideas and questions. The de-escalation techniques, uh, you know, the the role of a threat assessment team or something being, I I suggested there were ways to maybe uh, head off things before they really, uh, you know, go off. um, I hope I didn't misstate that. Um, are you learning certain things? I don't know if that's a question for Chris or whomever in terms of ways to de-escalate situations. I mean, uh, whose presence may uh, showing up may help that situation, uh, that kind of thing. Thanks. So the example that Marsha talked about where uh, that was really a multidisciplinary team that came together and met every week, psychiatry, nursing leadership, public safety. So, um, you know, the shutout might have been specific to some of the work uh, public safety did, but it's a wonderful example of pulling all of these elements together that require more than one person, um, dedicated leadership to, to, to support those efforts. And then um, we, we had a head start at Beth Israel Deaconess because Folks don't work in silos, so that there's a collegiality and a, and a, and a focus on solution uh, basis. But in particular, the takeaway uh, with regard to de-escalation is that it's multi-pronged. So new employees, uh, there's a core education online trainer that speaks to the support and resources around violence prevention, and if there is an event how to report it and be supported. Uh, There is also in development a de-escalation trainer that will have videos and scenarios so that employees can see how to appropriately approach and de-escalate, whether you are a frontline person at a counter that's doing scheduling in an outpatient or ambulatory setting, or whether you're a nurse on a a unit dealing with a a high-maintenance patient. So it's multi-pronged. And it's, it, even, it even is focused on specific units, whether it's the, 
emergency department, psychiatric staff that undergo more extensive de-escalating tra de-escalation training, such as management of aggressive behavior, behavior program, which which provide a little bit of defensive skill tactic tactics as well. Okay. All right, let's uh, uh, pause. Then uh, we got a lot of information on the table. I really want to thank uh, Pat, Marcia, and Chris from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And I'm now going to get into the chat. And John always does a wonderful job of reminding everyone <laughs> how to take part in the chat. Go ahead, John. Yeah, of course. <laughs> is my microphone on? Yeah, yeah. please. Uh, just make sure that your uh, questions and comments are in the chat box. It's at the bottom right-hand corner of the WebEx screen. And uh, make sure that the send to says all participants. That's why everybody looking and listening here on the WebEx can uh, hear what you're uh, – can read your comments and questions. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Well, all right. I'm going to uh, try and get to as many of these questions as I can. So, interestingly enough, uh, somebody has referred to uh, their PhD work on violence shows that there are three actors involved in any uh, violent event, the organizational setting, the staff behavior, and the patient behavior. And the reason I'm going to start with that is I saw a kind of a round of questions here about the workplace environment and workplace stress and whether uh, staff themselves, any ways that you've analyzed whether there's particular stress uh, could be, you know, over, in terms of how a unit is, is staffed, something that may be going on among staff themselves that may at least be a contributing factor uh, to other things then that might uh, spin out of control. I hope I said that okay. Uh, yeah. uh, Pat, any, any thoughts on that or Marcia, either of you? Well, let me start, and Pat can jump in, but, you know, I would say, yes, this, this is a really stressful environment, and it is pretty much a stressful environment every day, and it's getting more stressful every day. Our, our emergency room has patients, uh, psychiatric patients boarding without a place to go, Some, you know, often between 10 and 15 of those patients without placement on any given day. Our, our flow of patients into the hospital is very very intense. We have a busy level one trauma service, and, and that can often bring challenging patients. And, and as an organization, like every healthcare organization, we're being challenged to do more with less and, and you know, respond to all the changes in healthcare financing. So the direction of, of things in an inpatient setting is more and more stressful, and you layer on it um, the uncertainty of having even healthcare coverage for patients and then the opioid crisis. So we we are aware that that is the, the the context for all of this, and so not so much specifically related to violence, but we are thinking about how we um, begin to help our staff to de-stress. Even you know before we're saying how to de-stress a particular violent situation, how to just deal with their stress in particular. And we're actually finding this is a little bit off topic, but it's related to this, which is that people are engaging in more and more local self-care behaviors to try to take some of the stress level down for themselves, like different inpatient units are having a five to ten minute moment of mindfulness and meditation in the morning to just take everybody down a few notches before the day begins. It's happening. That's beginning to take off sort of organically in the organization. So now I'm trying to catch up to our staff and say, okay, clearly people are finding this helpful. How can we understand this, standardize it, and really make it available to everybody? So in my mind, that's not specifically to 
de-escalate a situation, but if the staff are feeling more centered, more mindful, and less stressed, they will probably then be able to, say, implement what they learn through the module on de-escalation more thoughtfully because they're less harried and less rushed. But the context is going to be, for the foreseeable future, having to figure out how to do these things under a lot of pressure. Thanks. Uh, uh, thanks, Marcia. Pat, was there anything you wanted to add to that? Uh, well, I think the thing, I, the only thing I would add is that it seems that there's opportunities, and this is one of the things that we are working on all the time, to just make sure that it's back to the don't worry alone to, er, to intervene earlier. So um, when thing, if things aren't going well with a patient or a family and things seem to be escalating, in, to reach up to your director or involve patient relations, um, because there's, there's still a high level of tolerance, I think, by our staff, um, and there's other systems for assisting for de-escalation. And public safety, as Chris said, is also a part of that in a clinical way. So it's not an armed officer coming. It's sometimes just somebody who's going to be there uh, to help you in advance of things getting really out of control. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you're having a moment. I know this show asks a lot of, for a lot of multitasking uh, while uh, uh, you're talking. Uh, there are, I mean, as we sort of suspected with this topic, and I'm, I'm very glad that we're digging into it. People have a lot of, are coming at it from a lot of different uh, perspectives. Uh, and um, so we'll try and see if we can get at some of them. One of the issues that was raised is whether or not there's a danger of kind of lumping uh, all patients into sort of one bucket here. And clearly BIDMC is trying very hard to sort of stratify what types of things are we talking about and where things are happening. Uh, but this particular person in the chat is asking uh, for your perspective on making some distinct- distinctions between somebody who's an active shooter uh, and uh, I'm not sure what what the other is, but the other uh, might be something where uh, that person is having a very, very hard time controlling their behavior, I guess. Yeah, there's, it's absolutely. Those are, and those are two pretty clearly distinctive uh, responses. The active shooter has its own sort of path and how we go about it. Actually, even within what you were just saying, it's an interesting question about how to handle um, intentionality versus right. really someone who has a an, an organic brain uh, situation, or even you know some they're under uh, some type of chemical impairment, and so you know they're not essentially in their right mind at the moment when they're doing what they're doing. Now they might the injury to uh, I gave, gave the example I think of the swinging call light that actually led to a staff person being hit in the face and getting stitches. I think that that was a, 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 a circumstance of a a person who I don't think they had particularly bad intent, they just were out of control. Functionally, I mean, they, they have some, to some extent, they probably have different approaches from a de-escalation point of view, like the approach you're going to take as a medical team to a patient who's delirious or has dementia or something like that would be a little different approach than, a, than someone who's needing to be behave, behaviorally um, addressed. But again, that's about really gathering the, all the people together as quickly as you can who have the expertise that they can bring to bear to, con- to construct an individualized response plan for that patient because it's not all the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a great issue to raise, and it's one when even when you look at that data, you know, we have, we've had uh, robust conversations about whether or not we should try to split out what is organic 
injury versus people that are really willful. And it's so hard to, it's hard to do that. When we look at the cases, there's different interventions for either of those scenarios. So Marsha brought up delirium, and we've had years of work now on early recognition of emerging delirium so that we can be ahead of it on the inpatient units. Um, so that's, that some of those patients might be included in this. Um, mm-hmm. But it is a bit of, there is a bit of clumping here because from the staff standpoint, we just have to think about what's the right interventions to keep them safe. Right. So we clump. Yes, I understand. And this is being kind of discussed and debated on the chat uh, with somebody pointing out that the ANA, the American Nurses Association, has adopted the will not tolerate any violence from any source. They, it's a position uh, statement from 2015. Um, I don't think that has to preclude coming up with more targeted and a sense of who you're dealing with types of interventions. But uh, it is uh, this kind of thing. I um one would hope that the incidents, of course, go down, uh, but, of course, uh, re- re- more refined ways of intervening with different types of incidents and people, of course, make sense, too. There is somebody in the chat, uh, Marcia is the one who brought it up, the opioid crisis, and who is asking whether that is really a bigger factor uh, than ever right now in terms of any increase in incidents and whether you would be able to know that. Well, we know, you know, it's hard, I can't speak to exactly things that are reported as assaults or threats and opioid uh, particular. What I'm thing I do know is, A, we're seeing a lot more pa- patients with opioid addiction. It's frequently the case, and Chris can comment about this, that we're calling um, public safety up. We are finding patients in the hospital all the time who have come in with drugs, with syringes, who are using their drugs while they're in the hospital, who are having friends or family come in and bring them drugs, and then we get into a situation of restricting visitors, and now you're in a contentious dynamic with the patient as you're trying to control those substances. And so that in and of itself leads to potential escalation of a situation as you try to deal with the the substances that might be in the environment and the use of those substances while you're trying to figure out what's going on with the person clinically, and that is a regular occurrence. Um, and, and occasionally in the course of searches for those things, people come across weapons and other kinds of things while they're searching for, um, uh, searching for a, a response to a drug situation. So it's, we don't have a, a one-size-fits-all or you know, a, a generic response to that, but it's definitely the prevalence is, is increasing. Mm-hmm. Madge, we'll give an example of how public safety will support uh, the clinical care in, in an example of, of a search. So... You don't want a uniform, so, so Beth Israel Deaconess has a blended, poli- blended public safety department. It has security and it has a small police, sworn police officer contingent that has full police powers. So you could have a, a uniform BIDMC police officer show up at a patient's room to do the search, but that's not what we do. We have a security officer who very discreetly will st- do a standby near the room while the clinician may go through the belongings. The security officer is there to assist, um, can intervene if necessary, but we always want to focus on the clinical care. But we want to have um, the resources there should something escalate. So that's kind of the partnership and dynamic of the safety and service that's so critical. You don't want the law enforcement presence to be the first, first tool in the toolkit when intervening in a situation where Somebody may be escalating up a little 
uh, due to a number of factors, but you do want to have uh, the resource available and nearby. Mm-hmm. We may put a police officer in plain clothes when there's a scheduled meeting or examination with a patient or their family who have who have shown issues of of being um, amped up or or anxious or stressed or intimidated. Do you have uh, any? Said it's really. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's, it's just a balance because it's a hospital. Yes, of right? course. So. It's- and it gets at one of the comments in the chat about, um, you know, uh, Chris was just trying to, you know, describe, I think, kind of an integrated approach, uh, the face of which, you know, it's very, very uh, sensitively understood, you know, what face maybe you want to show at, at what moment. Uh, I exactly. saw a comment uh, talking about clinical versus criminal, um, you know, uh, uh, responses and uh, what it means when really fundamentally we're talking about a clinical environment and perhaps really trying to come up with, it's almost like drawing upon all the things that everyone knows about improvement and how one might uh, go about all this. I want to uh, draw attention to a couple of other things. Uh, I do see comments in the chat of people kind of wondering whether or not uh, sometimes the emphasis on certain things uh, means that other things have not been uh, attended to. Uh, you know, patient and family-centered care has that sort of sometimes uh, put the emphasis more on patients than staff. I, I don't think I'm, I'm misstating what that person is suggesting there. Also, uh, just the rights of the mentally ill. I don't think that we're trying Trying to choose between the two, obviously, the it's my understanding that we're really trying to see how we can really pull together uh, the best of what we know. One question, one person is asking whether or not you do have any kind of lists or registry or flags and charts that indicate patients and or family members who have uh, caused problems uh, or been violent or aggressive in the past. Yeah, we do have um, uh, the ability to put a safety alert in a patient's record. So this is still part of their record. It's a clinical record. And the, 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 um, the reason for doing it is to sometimes it, it's to link to a clinical note about somebody who has a behavioral plan. It could be to let staff know that on the last admission this person eloped and um, they have a guardian. It could be that this is a person for whom the family is no longer allowed to visit here. Um, but we try, you know, this has to be done, this, this part of having a safety alert that's part of a patient's medical record has to kind of be exquisitely orchestrated because um, it should link to a clinical note. It's a status of either a family history or a patient's risk status. Um, and the other thing is that it, it can change over time. So it has to be interpreted uh, sort of temporally because it, it lives in the patient's record for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, we're so we're cautious about doing that at right. the same time trying to balance um, uh, and pay forward to future clinicians who might be caring for this patient to know that this patient, for example, has an, is impulsive and has struck people in the past, those kinds of things. What about um, communication? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. What about communication? Several people are asking, how do you, in a more general way, communicate, if you do, 
uh, in certain units publicly, kind of what's tolerated and what is not, I suppose. Some people are wondering, is there a message uh uh, that is being conveyed in a more public way to people who are visiting the hospital, uh, to see people, patients coming in, uh, even uh, for staff? Yeah. So we have a, a long history of having a patient bill of rights, and the, there's a section of that bill of rights that has the patient's response or family responsibility. Um, and so, And that's been around for a long time. So we, we remind our staff, about the fact that there is a respectful environment that's expected and that we will not tolerate verbal abuse, physical abuse, discriminatory behavior from patients and families towards us or by us toward each other or by us toward patients and families. We have not gone as far as putting signs up around weapons or signs up around um, not tolerating workplace violence, but we just, we have uh, the ability to remind our staff and to remind our patients by a bill of rights that uh, we have expectations for behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, interesting things. Thank you, uh, Pat. Interesting things being said in the chat. The, the Epic has some sort of security alert banner. If anybody who's in the chat wants to share any links for things, it will save you having to email several hundred people uh, with that information because we'll include it in our resource document, uh, but uh, any anything like that. Um, down to kind of, um, I, I as everyone knows on a WHI, we we sort of move through these big topics. Uh, we could spend hours talking about it and get into it even more granularly. So I do hope we can always come back to these things and we'll learn from uh, your comments and questions about what we might want to uh, zero in on more. And perhaps the good people at BIDMC uh, will be with us again and maybe some others. There is uh, somebody who's asking, do you have very particular kind of guidance or advice for the nurse at the bedside, uh, you know, and I, you know, at that level, and I know you've referred to different kinds of trainings and things that people best, uh, things to do to respond, how not to escalate, uh, but I, I wanted to make sure to ask that question. Somebody is asking particular uh, guidance for nurse at the bedside, I guess, who's about, who's experienced something that is either is or becoming violent. Well, I mean, it's hard to have a, there's not a simple answer to that. I think that all of what we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes, really, which is uh, don't worry alone, early reaching out for help, um, being able to step back and, and get help. I mean, the number one thing is if you if you sense that you're in a, a, a risky situation, the most important thing to do is step back and get help from someone else and don't try to handle it by yourself. If I was going to give a one a one-line uh, comment about things, but I, di- I also wanted to highlight. I mean, the thing is, we don't. You know, we're not we're not going about this through signage and other kinds of things. We're really building a culture of respect in the organization, and we're actually, I think, we're taking uh, ground on that. And so, as Pat articulated, that applies to how we expect patients and families to treat us, how we should treat patients and families, and as she said, how we should treat each other. And I think that that language of this should be a respectful environment, and included in that, and it is a little twist on how things have been for staff for a long time, included in that is that you, a staff person, are deserving of respect, and you, a staff person, should not be treated disrespectfully by a patient or family, whether it's them behaving violently, whether it's them behaving in a discriminatory way, a a family member or a patient who 
is just who behaves in a discriminatory way towards our um, underrepresented minority staff. Or I recently had the experience of a of a family member accusing a housekeeper of stealing something, which was wrong and untrue and didn't happen, and was very upsetting to that staff member. And I went and found that housekeeper and apologized to them on behalf of the organization. And so that's the messaging to staff, which is that we respect you. We expect you to be treated with respect even by our patients. And so it's it's building that culture. Okay. Well said, March. Uh, really appreciate that. All right. Quick comment uh, from John, and then we'll get some wrap-up uh, remarks from our wonderful panel. John. Yeah, thanks, Again with the mic. Uh, thanks, Madge. Uh, so we want to invite you and let you know about an upcoming IHI program. Um, uh, with today's shrinking healthcare costs, uh, health healthcare budgets, and growing focus on costs, it's never been more important to have a robust plan for safe patient handling, like we discussed on today's WIHI. Uh, maintaining a powerful safety program is essential to the long-term health of your department, your organization, uh, and even your whole healthcare system, and to ensure that your patients receive the safe and reliable care they deserve. Uh, to position your organization for success, we'd like to invite you to attend IHI's Patient Safety Executive Development Program. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but it's uh, it's ideal for patient safety officers and professionals in safety oversight roles, um, and it's an intensive six-and-a-half-day program. Uh, and some of the things it offers are actionable strategies, skills, and practical tools uh, to lead strong, effective patient safety programs, um, the chance to work with expert faculty to de- develop or refine detailed, customized strategies and implementation plans for solving those patient safety issues, uh, and insight into how to advise and coordinate the plans with uh, your senior leadership. Um, the next uh, patient safety executive development program is going to be held this September right here at Ca- in Cambridge uh, at the IHI. Um, and for more information or uh, uh, information on how to enroll, check out IHI.org slash patient safety exec. That's PT safety E-X-E-C. Uh, and that's on the screen on our slide right now. Or if you want some more information, e- uh, email info at IHI.org. Thank you so much, John. All right. Well, we uh, sped through this hour, but an awful lot of ground uh, has been covered. And I'm just going to go around the horn quickly with, uh, we'll start with Pat, Marsha, and then Chris, uh, kind of watch this space uh, types of things, uh, sort of anywhere you you would say you're going right now. I also just quickly want to acknowledge, because I didn't mean to skip over, there was somebody who asked about kind of the types of things that might go on, uh, any uh, staff person who has been uh, the victim of some violence, a uh, nurse or anyone else, kind of what sort of follow-up uh, goes on with that staff person. So I, I realize that it starts to open up yet another uh, body of um, discussion, but if anyone wants to weave that into their final remarks, please do. I'll start with you, Pat. Thanks. Sure. I would just I would say that this is a bit of a journey, right? So it's a marathon, I think, of um, activities that we're working on. And to your question, I would say that we have a few interventions. We have a peer support program. We expect the directors and the managers to be supporting our staff, but we also have a social work department where we have specialized social workers in the Center for Violence Prevention and Recovery who are skilled at supporting staff as well as patients, but staff who are victims of violence. So we use multiple ways to support staff who have been affected by violence. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Pat, Marsha? Yeah, I would just say that my job as a senior leader is to really walk the talk. So in, in the example of the question that was just asked about supporting staff, so if someone has been assaulted and they want to press charges, are we there with the public safety support and the legal support to help them through that? Are we there with the... Um, 
healthcare support to whatever injuries they might have sustained? Are we there with the emotional support uh, if, if that's the case? So our job is to deliver on all those things when they happen. And my job as a senior leader is to uh, make sure that the funding is available to um, hardwire the organization in terms of security to give people the training that they need and to be continually responding and present when something happens. So I think that's that's the way I think of it. All right. Thank you so much, Marsha. Chris? Listen to the employees. Um, and leadership has done an excellent job of that. One of the, the capital requests we've made is based upon certainly security input, but also listening to employees who, in an outpatient setting, uh, you have your waiting area, which in many ways you can't separate or or secure from exam room or back room administrative. So should there be an escalation in the waiting area, there's a a concern and, and a feeling of vulnerability that somebody can get very easily into the the back of the uh, back of the unit, and so we're we're going to rectify that. It won't be a, a quick fix, but we're putting together a program which leadership is is looking to fund, and uh, that came you know that came through talking with uh, staff during staff meetings and bringing that back as as and integrating it into the security assessment that the consultant did. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's a really concrete example, and I'm sure there are going to be more things like that. I really want to thank all of you, uh, Christopher Casey, Marsha Maurer, and Pat Fulcarelli. Uh, You've been outstanding uh, guests for us today and have shared so much valuable information. I also really want to thank the audience that's put a lot out there in the chat, and I encourage all of you uh, to download that chat. Take advantage of it when you get off the show today. It will also be posted to our archive page on our website. Next up on WIHI on August 24th, we're going to be talking about pursuing health equity with curiosity, notes from some new initiatives. Hope you'll be interested in that. And again, a reminder that you can download some of the items we shared on today's program as you log off. There's also a survey. We'd love to know what worked for you with today's show and what we could do better. So take just a minute or two to fill that out. And if you have any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI. They're a great group who help make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Haley Ladd, Joanna Carmona, Jameson Case, Val Weber, Mina Hadley, and Kiki Yee. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for today's discussion, a very important one. Good day, everyone. <music>